0: Within printed page rests fates unseen, doused in ink and laid between. Shadows lurk within your findings, to other realms and beyond the bindings. Welcome to Beyond the Bindings this week. We are going to do our part three finale of Needful Things by Stephen King. Part three is called Everything Must Go. If you recall from part two, it left off with kind of the climax of part two is Brian Rusk taking his own life, driven to insanity by Leland Gaunt and his regret for everything that he had done for Leland Gaunt as well as the the town essentially beginning to descend into chaos now if you thought that was something well part three really takes that to the next level now part three is i was super excited about not only getting to finish the story but also we finally got the full leland gaunt reveal it's not uh, you know you don't get a ton of detail about it but you get an idea of who leland gaunt is or what he is and that he's been around a very, very long time and that he's been peddling his wares through his needful things or whatever he happens to be calling it at the given time for quite some time. And he actually, you you know that he goes far as back as like uh, what seems like medieval Europe, that he was doing essentially the same thing in a different way. And uh, he was descending his chaos of probably amongst villages and kingdoms for a very long time, what seems like hundreds of years at this point. So is Leland Gaunt Randall Flagg? No, he is not, at least as far as I know from the ending of this story, he is certainly not. But is he similar? He does seem to be similar. He doesn't seem to be traveling through different dimensions or realms like Randall Flagg's most certainly is throughout all of the different stories he's included in but he is most certainly been living for quite some time and he is most certainly not a human and we get a little bit more reveal of what he actually might be towards the end of part three again part three is called everything must go so kind of going with this sale theme that's been running through the entire the entire book with the grand opening the sale of the century into everything must go And so essentially what happens in this part is Castle Rock descends completely into chaos. What was happening in the first, in part two, gets times the hundred throughout this, throughout part three, and it just gets really, really intense. It's actually, I mean, it's not actually funny because it's so twisted, but... Eventually what happens is Leland like closes down the front of the shop, but he opens up this side door and sets up a table. And like all of the little the little feuds he set up throughout, he's set up a table and the people are coming to him in complete manic states and they're asking him for weapons, those weapons that Ace had brought back early in the story. And he's just providing everybody with firearms. And so every little tie that had been connected through a feud kind of comes to a head at this point and he is continuing to provide them with chaos and at this point continuing to provide them with the weapon weaponry that they need to go forth with the killing of their their enemy at this point so sheriff pangborn finally starts who's alan so alan finally starts to finally he finally starts to piece toge- together together everything based on Sean Russ statement if you remember Sean is Brian's little brother Sean actually witnessed Brian shoot himself and Sean was told by Brian that he could never go to Needful Things that it's a poison store selling poison things from a poisoned man and this is where Alan the puzzle piece the final piece kind of clicks in and he sees that this is all coming from and stemming from Needful Things and stemming from Leland Gaunt, a person who has so easily avoided Alan the entire book and they still have yet to meet in person. So this is where it all kind of clicks into place for Alan and he sees all of this has started since the opening of Needful Things and since Leland's Leland's first moving into Castle Rock, which really only a couple of days have really passed since the beginning of the story. At a certain point in this part, Polly kind of goes through a big, like, kind of a coming of age and realizing what's actually going on with the amulet, that the amulet has poisoned her in the same way that Sean Rusk is describing, knowing that Alan is actually looking out for her best interests and that he's only questioning it because he wants what's best for her. And through some enlightenment Polly is able to finally come to terms with that and realize that this is actually causing her a lot of harm in her life and causing her a lot of harm in her relationship with Alan it's kind of to the point where she realizes that why would I trust Leland Gaunt over Alan and that's kind of like the first click of oh this thing is not doing me the good it's it's just it's not even a band-aid it's a uh, it's a mask. It's like alcohol. It's just covering it up. It's not actually doing what she thinks it's doing. So she finally rids herself of this amulet, and the whole time she had referenced that it felt like something was alive inside of it, but she couldn't see it inside of there. It just felt like something was alive inside of it. Well, when she rids herself of it, a spider comes out of it. And honestly, some of my favorite imagery from this entire this entire book that King crafts is from this scene because the spider starts out small and it kind of grows and morphs and she's basically fighting it and fights it off and it's changing and you kind of get the feeling that this is actually Gaunt, that this is in some way this is an entity that is controlled by Gaunt, whether it's real or a figment of Polly's imagination, it is real in some way to her. And she has this pretty epic battle with this thing that is is quite terrifying because it kind of seems to be morphing in and out of shape and becoming a spider, becoming a, like an incredibly large spider, but also like one that's quite deformed. And at a certain point she brutally kills it, but that's kind of like a blinking of the eye moment and then the spider kind of transitions into just this regular spider like it was almost just a regular small spider that she squashed and it's so interesting. The way he wields and crafts that scene. And I thought, honestly, one of my favorite parts of this entire story. Meanwhile, while all of this is going down, Keaton and Ace Merrill, who are the who would be the worst people you would ever want to be companions, just because they're all they're both so twisted, become allies, of course. And they're kind of Leland Gaunt's main pawns. They're kind of his right hand man, even though he really could care less about them. He's just using them exactly as everybody else. They're just another pawn in this whole twisted game he's playing, and what they're doing essentially is is planting explosive charges all throughout the town of Castle Rock. So this is where you get the full picture of he doesn't just want Gaunt doesn't just want all the people in Castle Rock to kill each other. He doesn't just want everybody to tr- be driven into chaos and insanity. He wants the town blown off the map. Something about him being able to destroy these towns and destroy these lives gives him energy and gives him more life because clearly he's kind of almost like a like a vampire in that in that way where he's feeding off of the the misery and the pain and the death of all of these people but also as the town as a whole so it's almost like he gets something out of the individuality of a person but also as the collective nature of the entire group of people which is quite fascinating to see him just kind of suck this town dry so quickly and Keaton and Ace are kind of just easy, easy pawns they were in easy an easy uh, target as far as what he was trying to accomplish they very willingly went to him there of all of them nobody really fought it to be honest but all of the ones that like submitted to like, we're just actually going to work for him and like openly are cool with killing people and destroying the entire town. Keaton and Ace were the ones that really didn't have much regret. Keaton shows a little remorse at points about killing his wife Myrtle at the end of part two, which is also a pretty big part of the climax as well. But at this point, the entire town is quite literally exploding it is they have been planting these charges kind of they he describes it as starting with this bridge and kind of working their way on castle rock's a small town so you're kind of assuming that most of this is just occurring along main street now while all of this is happening you're you're getting many different stories and that catholic baptist feud that's been uh, that's been going on the entire story it all kind of stemmed from a casino night, and I think it was that the Catholics were putting on a casino night, and the Baptists had a huge issue, like a moral stance against the casino night, how it was, uh, it did not align with their religious beliefs, and all of this kind of stuff, and they're meeting separately, obviously they're not meeting together, and they're kind of planning out how they're going their plan of attack against the other well at all while all of this is happening both groups are locked in the Buildings that they're in and a sort of like tear gas mustard gas gets released inside of those buildings And so they're all caught the doors are all locked. Some end up getting out It's a pretty brutal scene as far as like people are like running into each other It's described as this yellow gla- gas is clouding the air and this is another. I mean, a pretty great imagery of chaos in this scene as well. People are vomiting because of the how strong the gas is, and it just gets really, really intense. Some are able to get out, and uh, they don't they don't see the error in their ways at all. And they get out, and they they essentially just kind of have like a little gang war between the Catholics and the Baptists in the middle of the street, and they have it out, knives, guns, and all the uh, the the state police that had kind of come in to help out with the murders, are trying to control all of this, but they just, I mean, it's its utter chaos amongst, because us, you have to think of it this way, there's basically like this gang war going on in the middle of a street, at the same time, other people throughout all of Castle Rock are finding each other, angry, feuding, killing each other. Gaunt's providing weaponry for all of this. And at the same time, Keaton and Ace are kind of in the background and they're planting these charges and they're setting them off 30 minutes, 25 minutes, 20 minutes. So they're basically all kind of going off in in tandem with each other. And all of this is dropping at the same time. And the state police, who are just called in because of the murder of Nettie Cobb, are just basically what in the world is going on in this town, and I don't think there's any way we can control it. So all the feuds at this point are coming to a head, both big and small. The Elvis feud that was going on between Sean and Brian Russ' mom and her good friend, I forget the good friend's name, that comes to a head. What ends up happening? They kill each other. There's several other of these situations that are going on, is it entertaining, and does it does it kind of give you a full scope of how dropped into chaos and manic this whole town was? It does. I'm going to state my one critique here: is this book is not short. It's I mean it's not it's not as long as the stand. It's not as long as it, but it, it's not short. It's about six or seven hundred pages long, depending on your copy. At this point I had a really full understanding of exactly what was happening and you know I appreciate and love this kind of aspect of King's writing no matter what and it's not like I it slowed me down or anything but I did feel like it was a little redundant like I did get the point I did enjoy the Elvis one just because there was a certain amount of humor in that one but there was uh there was a few others that I just I kind of just saw as redundant and as a reader and maybe it's just because I'm very uh, well versed in Stephen King and his writing style and I've read a lot of his books that I did find it just kind of like yo Steve I got I got it I understand what you're kind of getting at here the whole town is descending into chaos I did find it a little redundant Did it slow me down? No. Do I really regret that he did it? No. It is kind of his style and I I do respect that for sure. But I did feel like it maybe necessarily wasn't needed just because there was other ties that needed to be looped up and put in a nice with a nice little bow to wrap this whole story up. So while all of this is happening, you're kind of just hoping or wanting to get back to Alan because you know that Alan has finally figured this out. He's going to go to Needful Things and and figure out whatever he possibly can, no matter what now. So Alan finally takes his trip to Needful Things. He enters the store and nobody is there. He cannot find Leland. He is essentially knows that Leland has caused this in one way or the other, and he's really just trying to get to the bottom of it. When he enters the store, King crafts this kind of dark imagery of an unknowing nature of what's going on. It seems like it's almost like he went into a basement. It's not a basement, but it's almost as if he goes into it, like if you're going into a basement and the lights aren't working and you've never been in that basement before. That That's kind of just the, the biggest connection I can make to it. And he knows that Gaunt is there, but he's looking everywhere around. And this is kind of the first idea that Alan, I feel, gets that maybe Gaunt is more than just a human. Maybe he's more than just a person selling antiques at a store, a new store in Castle Rock. And he's been told, do not buy anything from Leland Gaunt. Well, Leland put out a VCR and a tape. He knows almost immediately what the contents of this is going to be regardless. He has a lot of conflict between himself, whether or not he should actually open up or actually watch the the tape on the VCR. He's very conflicted because he knows that it's going to have to do in some way or another with his wife and his son. If he is to put it in and watch it, then he's making an informal agreement with Leland Gon, just as everybody else did. So at this point, you're really like, dude, Alan, come on, man, don't do it. Like, you know, you know what this has caused. Sean Russ described it to you, poison things from a poisoned man. Look at what his brother did to himself. He knows all of this, but he's so hooked uh, he needs to know what happened that day. He's been really conflicted the entire story with it, and he really needs to get to the bottom of it. And at this point, he submits, and he puts in the video, and he sees a familiar road, as he is the sheriff of this town, probably very aware of all of the roads in Castle Rock. And all of a sudden, his wife's car comes running down the road, and right behind it, you see ace merrill's car the dodge charger i believe it was a green shade and eventually what you find out is according to this video according to this video ace merrill caused the death of alan's wife and child alan is completely distraught at this point and he is incredibly torn up and this is eventually he it leads to him exiting out of needful things in kind of a manic state, and then uh, once he gets out, we flash forward to some other parts of the story as well. So I don't want to forget that at one point at one point, Ace and Keaton have it out. they were going to go try and blow up the municipal building and they end up having it out with Norris Ridgwick, the deputy. And Norris ends up shooting. I believe it's Norris who ends up shooting Keaton. Keaton doesn't die. Alan takes him out of his misery, like a like a like an injured horse. It's quite brutal. He had grown to really like Keaton, but he was not going to deal with him anymore. And Al, and then Ace ends up making his way to Needful Things as well. So at some point, when uh, when Alan leaves Needful Things, or at least walks out of the building. Polly meets him there. Polly and him kind of exchange words. Ace ends up showing up, and Ace is actually has Polly. He's got a gun to her head. and then and then Gaunt makes his way out of the of needful things. So for the first time, Gaunt and Alan actually have an exchange. This is the first time they've ever met in person and they have an exchange with each other gaunt essentially is feeling like he's won at this point and through this alan kind of doesn't trick him but he's he's exchanging words with him and then alan's been the whole the whole story and i have not really gotten to this because i didn't i didn't until the end of it you don't really see the significance of it alan had these little like magic tricks that he kept on him specifically for when he had to deal with children as a cop just because he didn't want to be he didn't want to feel intimidating or come off as intimidating to children so he would always keep these magic tricks because he he had a feeling that like police officers made children feel uncomfortable or made them feel intimidated because they came from such a place of authority so he always kept these tricks on him and king references this quite a few times it comes up again with sean Rusk. that's the last time it comes up before this section of the book and essentially he pulls this trick on gaunt and he pulls um he had like one of those uh, those peanut jars where you open up the peanuts, and it's uh, like a like a spring snake comes out of it. Well, when he opens up the peanuts for uh, for Gaunt, it a spring snake comes out, but that snake turns into a real snake for whatever magical purposes possible. Alan doesn't have any any magical ability. I don't know if this has to do with Leland's connection to the magic realm or whatever it is, but this snake bites onto onto gaunt's shoulder throughout this part it had been referenced that gaunt had this like leather satchel with him there's a brown leather satchel and he drops it and alan had figured out that there had to have been some importance to that based on the way that he was gripping it and he ends up taking the satchel from him at this point point. and this is where you realize that the satchel contained kind of all of the souls that he had been feeding on from all of the people of castle rock and at this point gaunt starts to like shift in and out of being like a demon and he like changes shape and he like um, turns almost like the color of like obsidian at one point and this is where you know that they have finally defeated gaunt and at this point he does get into his talisman that car from earlier today and he kind of flees in in absolute panic and he does try and get the bag back as well but that kind of all you know is all for naught and does not work out for him so as he flees from the town of castle rock you see the talisman change shape and it changes into like different cars and then it changes into a, a horse and then changes into a horse-drawn carriage. So you know at this point that a lot of what he was crafting was a complete illusion to everybody who was seeing this. And you had already gotten that impression as you had seen other people's views of what as you had seen, people's views of other people's purchases. For instance, the Sandy Koufax card was not actually a Sandy Koufax card. The Elvis sunglasses were not actually Elvis sunglasses. They were like a. She thought they were perfect. They were actually these broken up pairs of sun, pair of sunglasses. And this is the grand finale. And he's turning, in, it turns into a carriage at one point. And this is where you get the full scope of he's just kind of masking these illusions that come with him wherever he goes. And that brings us to the finale of Needful Things. And in Stephen King fashion, we get a ending that goes off of the story, and it brings you to another small town, another small town in which a new store is opening so it's very circle circular, you know, it's very, it's that cycle that is not uncommon in a Stephen King story, it's very Dark Tower-esque, and it's like one of those things where if you're a fan of King's writing, once you read that, it's very short, it's about a page and a half, two pages, you close it, and you, you get a big old smile on your face, because he did it, you know, he did exactly, you know, there's no like, and then Alan and Polly went and got married, and everything was great in Castle Rock, you don't get any of that, all you know is that this cycle starts over, and then Gaunt, or whatever alias he is taking on, is going to continue that. The themes, I would honestly say those themes that I had mentioned in Part 1 and 2, lust, greed, inability to look past one's desires, are it continue to stem through Part 3. I really kind of made a connection. Uh, at one point, especially when people were showing this lust for their, their items that they were buying, i I had and probably this is because I had just re-watched Lord of the Rings um I read the I had reread the Lord of the Rings last year and then I had just watched them, but a lot of their obsession is so much like Gollum his obsession with the one ring and Schmiegel's uh, turning into Gollum over the course of his years with the one ring and even uh the the hold that it's it starts to have over frodo towards the end of the lord of the Rings story and very similar um attributes that they're showing from these people to what the one ring is doing to its holder in lord of the Rings. so love that i love the themes in this story honestly i, I had said it before this is this. i mean i read seeming king books quite a bit and i usually read quite a few a year this is the best time I've had, honestly, since maybe the Bill Hodges trilogy. I, honestly, that I mean, I love the Bill Hodges trilogy. And right before that, I was reading all the bangers. I was reading some good ones. I read Doctor Sleep. I read, or I read The Shining into Doctor... Oh, first of all, I read The Stand. And then I read The Shining into Doctor Sleep. And then immediately after that, I read The Outsider, unknowing that... I did not know at the time that The Outsider came after the Bill Hodges trilogy. So I read The Outsider, dug it. I liked it a lot. Then I read the Bill Hodges trilogy starting with Mr. Mercedes and I was like, "Ooh, that was way better than The Outsider." The Outsider's good, don't get me wrong, but Mr. Mercedes into the rest of those stories. Ooh, I can't remember the other two off the top of my head. Finder's Keepers is the second one and Last Watch I believe is the third one. Don't have them right off the top of my head, but that's all right. They're amazing. I highly recommend checking them out. They are a great example of Stephen King's current writing style, and I would say a lot more accessible than some of his later work, just because they're not as daunting with page length. So on the horizon... I, uh, I'm i going to stick with horror, not for any particular reason, just because I've been wanting to read Carrying Comfort by Dan Simmons for quite some time. I actually started it this morning, and uh, it's really good. I've been really enjoying it so far. And so the next book we'll be covering is Carrying Comfort by Dan Simmons. It is a three-part book, I believe. I don't think I'm going to do three parts for it. I think I might do two. I'm going to finish through part two and decide it's a pretty dense book as far as length and as far as content goes so i again just like i did with this one i want to make sure i'm doing it justice shorter books books three and 400 pages long i really have no issue with uh with making one episode out of them but i i think when they're a little bit longer they they deserve the the length out of it and i deserve to be able to have a little bit more time to talk about them so as always i'm max lopez and this is beyond the bindings